The views and opinions expressed by hosts and guests do not necessarily reflect the views of the Global Liberty Alliance, its network, sponsors, donors, or broadcast platforms. The Global Liberty Alliance provides this podcast for informational purposes. Freedom of speech is a fundamental right and essential for free societies to prosper. Thank you for listening and supporting the mission of the Global Liberty Alliance, dedicated to strengthening and defending fundamental individual rights, free markets, and the rule of law. The views and opinions expressed by hosts and guests do not necessarily reflect the views of the Global Liberty Alliance, its network, sponsors, donors, or broadcast platforms. The Global Liberty Alliance provides this podcast for informational purposes. Freedom of speech is a fundamental right and essential for free societies to prosper. Thank you for listening and supporting the mission of the Global Liberty Alliance dedicated to strengthening and defending fundamental individual rights, free markets, and the rule of law. The views and opinions expressed by hosts and guests do not necessarily reflect the views of the Global Liberty Alliance, its network, sponsors, donors, or broadcast platforms. The Global Liberty Alliance provides this podcast for informational purposes. Freedom of speech is a fundamental right and essential for free societies to prosper. Thank you for listening and supporting the mission of the Global Liberty Alliance. Dedicated to strengthening and defending fundamental individual rights, free markets, and the rule of law. This is Jason Poblet. Uh, welcome to the Global Liberty Alliance podcast. We have today a fellow lawyer and uh, litigator, Juan Carlos Gomez from Florida International University School of Law, but also a longtime uh, litigator, uh, all around great person. Uh, we're going to dive into immigration and some policy issues. And before we do that, I just want to introduce him to you. Juan Carlos, how are you doing today? I'm doing well. Thank you for the invitation. I appreciate uh, thank- it. Uh, thank you for uh, uh, joining us today. Juan Carlos is a graduate from the University of Pennsylvania uh, School of Law. He also uh, graduated from our common alma mater down there. We both graduated from Florida International University with uh, BAs. Although he graduated with honors, I did not. So uh, he made the dean's list uh, many times uh, when he was at FIU. He also went to Boston University, where he also uh, was on the dean's list. He has a rich uh, history in, in the law. I'm going to post his background on the uh, podcast website so you can all read up on some of the great work he has been doing and great work he has been doing. In fact, Juan Carlos was honored last year by the, uh, the Archdiocese of Miami uh, Catholic Legal Services for his work on behalf of folks on the margins of society. And it's right in the sweet spot of what uh, GLA uh, loves to do which is to go places where other folks uh, dare not go. Uh, but he's doing this much closer to home. He's doing this in, in Miami, Florida. Well, Carlos, tell us a little bit about, first of all, before we get into the immigration issue, how did you get into the law and uh, what was your journey to it? And how did you pick this particular space? Uh, thank you. That's a very kind introduction. Uh, uh, I, it's, 
let's we'll we'll, we'll discount the word great. Uh, just okay. <laughs> but there's um, the uh, the way I got into the law was that I I had always wanted to be a lawyer. Uh, I always wanted uh, to. I, I had this idea of trying to advocate for those who couldn't advocate for themselves. Um, I had seen uh, injustice. My family, uh, I came to the US when I was six years old and my mother and father had seen uh, or and lived through and my sister and I were always terrified um, of something happening to our parents because of the communist system. I, I prefer to use the word dictatorship and at, at different points, totalitarian system in, in Cuba. And um, so I had seen injustice there and I was very small and I, 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 I saw what people could do to each other with too much power. Uh, and uh, then here, I, I went through different experiences that uh, sort of told me that law was my way. Uh, and uh, I've been really blessed in life with mentors who kindly uh, taught me and, and, and guided me uh, through a, a lot of a, a lot of phases of life, and, and so that's how I ended up in law school. And then there was a funny joke when I started practicing law, uh, and my father's joke was, lawyers uh, sit in an office and meet with their clients, and one of my first uh, what I would call real jobs, I clerked uh, for a year. One of my first real jobs was I would go to court in the, during the day. Uh, and then at night I would uh, drive around in a Dodge Omni that uh, was uh, basically filled with banker's boxes and other uh, sorted stacks and stacks of paper. Um, and I would drive around to rural areas of South and semi-central Florida uh, looking for uh, farm workers, specifically Guatemalans and Salvadorans, um, in a certain class action um, related to asylum. And my father had a joke that he said uh, that lawyer does not have his office in the backseat of his car. And, uh, and that sort of, uh, sort of started to define my career significantly. That's a you know, that's a phenomenal story. In fact, I want to go back before we talk about that part of your life, the uh, some of the advocacy you've done. When you, how much were you shaped, do you think, by what happened to your family and that break, I guess, uh, from living in an authoritarian climate and where you took it? Because you continue to be very vocal and you continue to have. Uh, your work, you could tell, has that thread, the justice thread. But it, 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 putting the government and the politics aside, how much of it uh, was shaped your decision to jump in the law by what happened to your family? Well, significantly, that in a way that has defined so many of us uh, in, 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 in the community I come from, uh, that we, uh, many of us, uh, believe that we must be careful. People need to understand uh, the function of government and power and the function of true education. And I distinguish true education from 
uh, fluff in one way, uh, and then uh, education that is uh, so un or so I was about to say unreal, but uh, so disconnected from reality. I remember um, I, I represented a professor once. He was a math uh, a, a math professor, uh, and he was forced to teach uh, Marxist math. And the question is, what is that exactly? And he said that what he would do in class is he would make a joke. He would uh, say whatever he was compelled to say, but then he would get back to math. Uh, and hmm. we need to be careful because at the individual level, and this is something that we here in our country in the United States need to be very aware of and, and conscious of, uh, it's kind of redundant, but the idea is that power at all levels, whether it's the reception desk, the front window, uh, the guard letting, into, letting you into the courthouse, uh, the clerk, uh, the, the, the clerk who decides that it's lunchtime um, in, in five minutes and so they don't want to start something new. Uh, the, uh, the lawyers who have a responsibility to be informed, the lawyers who, uh, who prosecute, the lawyers who uh, make the regulations, the laws, uh, and we have to, it, I'm not saying people need to uh, sort of be involved in everybody else's life, but we have to beware of of the dangers of government uncontrolled right. and on the extreme left and on the extreme right. We have to be very careful. We have to be practical and conscientious citizens. So what, what happened to the legal profession in Cuba? What, what did, you know, why is it that it went from a country that had lawyers opening law firms? You know, my grandfather was a lawyer in Cuba and he practiced uh, law uh, at a, at a kind of like you did in America today at a law firm. Today in Cuba, it's gone to a system that you work for a state law firm. And if you try and practice law on your own, first of all, it's illegal in most cases, but it's frowned upon. So how, how what happened in Cuba that there was this, not, by the way, not a lot of people talk about this radical break in that legal tradition. I mean, it's um, quite difficult for folks to grasp, but why do you think Fidel and the early uh, phases of the revolution not only confiscated property, but also muzzled the lawyers. Well, there's that cliche line from Shakespeare, of course, about first thing we do is kill all the lawyers. Mm -hmm. That is because as much as people dislike us, um, we are uh, a very important tool in, uh, in, in I realize that, uh, that words like justice and fairness are not uh, are, are, are sort of mocked in some instances, but uh, people don't understand how important this is uh, in, in, in a practical sense. If you, uh, I, I try to use the comparison where uh, if, uh, if you, sometimes people will agree uh, to renounce their rights uh, without knowing what they're doing, without reading, and uh, there's the joke about how you scroll down on the internet and you press uh, and you click, I guess it's because you don't really press the I agree without actually reading what you've just agreed to. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. And people in, in a place like Cuba, uh, you cannot abdicate your rights. That is always a mistake. 
And the legal profession in Cuba, in a certain way, if, uh, if you want to say, was co-opted um, and was gutted uh, in, in many, in, for, for decades. And even today, uh, we never thought, and I, I, I monitor some of this, uh, we never thought that security courts uh, would be active again. One of the most impactful memories in my life was there was this gentleman um, who lived uh, near our house. Uh, and I remember the gentleman was very, a very nice man and uh, he disappeared. Uh, and uh, a while later, uh, the, it was discovered that he had been taken to a military tribunal he was not a soldier, he and, and a, a civilian, mm-hmm. and he was sentenced to, uh, to uh, it was more than a couple of decades. And I mean, I'm talking about living in fear. Uh, there's a joke in my family that uh, most people are, of the new generation will not remember what carbon paper is, um, what you would use to copy from one page to the other. But I remember my parents being afraid of having carbon paper uh, because it, it was considered suspicious. Wow. And so um, people would go through your trash to see what you had. Uh, and the question is to live in a state like that where you, uh, you don't have access to people who can speak up for you, who can defend, who have fair tribunals. And, uh, and we have to be careful because uh, in, here in the U.S., sometimes um, we, uh, we commit great injustice. Uh, I, I, speedy trial is misunderstood. Uh, speedy is not the key word. Uh, speedy trial is, meant, is, is related to when you're incarcerated and you want to resolve the, the case as quickly as possible as a constitutional right. But the truth is that you want an intelligent and informed hearing. You want everyone to have as much of the evidence and as much of accurate evidence as possible. And that takes work. Uh, and- Are you, you saying lawyers, so, so you're saying I can get back to you with an answer right away, right? I mean, guarantee results. Lawyers can guarantee results too. Absolutely not. Yeah, that's <laughs> the funny thing that, I mean, people, um, I, I, I use two examples. I, I, I have one truly absurd one, which is that I tell people that Galileo was my client and that uh, it took a few centuries to resolve his matter, but he stopped, uh, he stopped being concerned at a certain point uh, and didn't call anymore. And you know, it's a, it'll take a few centuries. Uh, and <laughs> then the, uh, the other one, which is uh, more practical, is I tell people I have a case that it took me 21 years 21 years to keep this lady safe and here. Um, and her life was the incarnation of tragedy. Mm-hmm. Uh, and the thing is, though, that uh, sometimes life presents you with situations where you must make a choice. And uh, she, um, she sort of fell into my life. And uh, the funny thing is that uh, we, we, we won the case. Uh, but uh, there's a, another step in her life that we have to uh, go through. And um, we spoke a few months ago and I said, not yet. Let, mm-hmm. Let's see when we, when, when we get to that point. And, that, and, 
people want a quick answer and life is not domino's pizza this is no no it's not and as that's no and, and law work it's it's curious and we'll talk about this toward the end of the program for people considering careers in law but it's something that even in law school they really don't give you you learn this i guess i guess through time is that uh, justice moves slowly and i've learned that if at all sometimes uh, especially when you're working with these cases that you work on on the margins um, and there's a lot here that you've done that more people need to do uh, not just as a as a work of charity but as an application because you know, the justice when you talk to lawyers in cuba for example and you ask them that question what's justice and you get I don't even think some of them have been asked that question uh, in, a, in a long time because some of them have just given up and that's sad, but there are others who haven't. And if you thought lawyering in the U.S. was difficult, lawyering in places like Cuba when you're an independent lawyer and you're trying to defend fundamental rights of people, forget about the political issues or political cases, people at the margins of society who are completely forgotten about and who just need help for basic things and the lawyer can't help them. For many lawyers down there's very frustrating and some of them just give up and and uh, that's that's not good because some of them are staying behind because they want to help you know, create you know the talent or the rule of law and, yeah. and, and have that uh, which is difficult impossible to have in a police state but over here coming, coming back to the states for a minute talking about your work you've done work with the florida immigrant advocacy center the east little havana legal services and you've done so much work on the margins in south florida places that most South Floridians don't even know exist. A few years ago, um, 2019, I read a Miami Herald story about how the Trump administration uh, had somehow managed, despite the coarse political rhetoric between Cuba and the United States and the sanctions and the tough policy, had managed to come up with an agreement with Cuba to repatriate 120 uh, Cubans that had been in federal custody for some a very long time. I know you've done work in this space. Uh, I know that those agreements don't come about easily. So two, two points briefly, and then we'll, we'll, we'll ask Juan Carlos to uh, give us his impressions on this issue because there's so much here we could talk about. But one, the issue that these some of these people were in jail for a very long time and that the Trump administration was able to negotiate with Cuba, notwithstanding the, the public war of words that we've had with Cuba with every administration, it's kind of happening now again, is quite remarkable. But second, these people that have been in, in federal prisons for some many, many years that were sent back, uh, what do you think about these type of agreements. In fact, that agreement was the beginning because if you read the Herald story, it says, and more to go and more to come. How do you deal with something like this? Because it's something that you can't, you tell a client, you're not gonna come out of here anytime soon probably. Uh, and then you're gonna go back to Cuba, which is quite fascinating uh, for many reasons. But what are your initial, like, you, you've talked publicly about this before and I'd love the listeners to hear some of your impressions about this because it's quite, interesting how you've managed to keep going in this space, which if it were me, Juan Carlos, I don't think I'd be doing this as long as you have, because it's tough. It's tough to bring good news to clients in these spaces. Well, it is. It is. There's a, it's, a, it's a strange thing. Uh, in capital defense cases, and 
one of the things that's interesting is that people uh, will sometimes say, oh, how can you represent such a person? And I always ask them, wouldn't you want someone to represent you uh, if you had a legal problem? Uh, and this is, uh, remember the Pastor Neumaller uh, line, and I'm going to misparaphrase it, but first they came for, and then they came for, and eventually when they came for me, there was no one to defend me. Um, uh, it's uh, in people need to understand that uh, we are all human beings. We all, I, I'm one of those who believes that we all have a soul and that you, even the person accused of committing the most horrifying uh, crime, uh, we need to make sure that, uh, that the process is fair. We need to make sure that we really are living up to our standards and we need to make sure that the accusations are correct. I'll give you an example uh, which will lead in a way to the, the, the Cuba uh, situation. But a couple of years ago, um, and I, I represent a lot of mentally ill people, and there was this gentleman who um, he kept insisting that he was from Jamaica. Uh, and we knew that the gentleman was mentally ill. Well, um, we're having a hearing and all of a sudden he mentions this small town uh, in, in Mississippi. And, uh, and I said, that's strange. Um, when were you in this town? And he said, oh, when I was a, ki a kid, I, I, was, I spent a lot of time there. And he said, um, do you happen to have a social security number? And one of my students ran to the Social Security Administration and we discovered uh, that this man was a US citizen. Wow. Now, this man had been in immigration custody for six months, uh, approximately six months. And uh, everyone thought that he was a Jamaican. And what happened was that he lived with a sister in this small town in Mississippi. He was born in a time of segregation uh, and uh, he, uh, sister, I, I found a sister in Northern Florida. That sister connected me to the sister in Mississippi. And the sister said, oh, he wandered off uh, because the gentleman's a schizophrenic. Mm -hmm. uh, and then he was picked up in Orange County, Florida. And uh, the thing is that it, he was charged with a typical homeless crime, which is trespassing. And then because he said he was Jamaican, and if someone had checked his history, they would realize that this did not make sense, not to mention that he was unmedicated for a significant period of time. So it was only in a moment of lucidity that, and then the generosity of the official at Social Security, the intervention of the law student, and um, then the government quickly scrambled uh, to verify, we got a copy of his real birth certificate uh, from uh, from his sister. She she scanned it over. Uh, my mind it's faxing. I, I I'm not very techy, um, and so we were able. And he's living fine with his sister, but the problem is that the legal system had failed him significantly until people worked together and to, to resolve this. But the thing is that we are dismissive uh, of, of the other. 
it's it's not my problem it's your problem uh, and so I'll, it's not it's not something that concerns me and that's wrong thinking and if you go back uh, to the situation with Cubans being deported uh, people uh, there wasn't a deportation treaty for a very long time between Cuba and the U.S. because there wasn't uh, there weren't diplomatic regular diplomatic relations, and under the Obama administration, uh, diplomatic relations were reestablished to a degree, um, and but there still wasn't a deportation treaty, and so one of the problems is that I, I use the, the the example of this case because a lot of people uh, don't understand that the immigration process is an administrative process. It's a these judges are judges who are actually lawyers in the Department of Justice, and they are quasi-judicial officers, we'll say. Well, what happens is that a lot of people in prison uh, don't have access to lawyers. Uh, a lot, uh, they, they, they might have committed crimes which are forgivable in the immigration sense, and people also give up because they're told there's no hope. Uh, there is a contract detention facility in a place called Lumpkin, Georgia, and people there took orders of removal simply because they were aware that they weren't going to win. Because when judges behave more like them, more like prosecutors than the prosecutors, we have an issue. When we incentivize uh, removal and detention. By, by because of profit and contracts, or because we have this zealous need to move people out, uh, then we're missing the detail. We're missing the opportunity to hear people's stories. And I can't tell you the number of times when I've been in court and I hear people on the verge of giving up uh, and I think to myself, okay, time to jump in because I, I can't stomach the idea of, and there are instances where the, the law is, is correct and people need to sort of deal with justice and, and consequences, but there are so many people who have been hurt. And one of the greatest tragedies in the last few years uh, has been, there were a lot of Cubans who made it to US and were applying uh, and, and wanted to apply for asylum but the uh, government forum shop and sent these people to places where they knew they A, would not have access to lawyers uh, and B, uh, they were courts that were basically uh, machines that produced numbers. And human beings must never, ever, ever be numbers. Human beings must never be files and human beings must never, ever, ever be treated as uh, a one more widget in a quota system. And we're talk that, that's what was happening with the Cubans. We need to move numbers. We're talking to Juan Carlos Gomez with Florida International University College of Law and also a human rights advocate in South Florida. We're going to take a quick break and continue our conversation. And we'll pick up with Juan Carlos on this issue of numbers. We'll be right back. Hello, fellow Liberty Warriors. If you haven't heard about Anchor, it is the easiest way uh, to make a podcast. It's free uh, for starters. There's also uh, an awesome creation tool. If you don't want to hire a producer right away, 
you can record and edit your podcast right from your phone, right from your computer, anywhere you are at any time. It's uh, distributed for you. So that's really important. Once you record this, you need to get it to the right platform. They will do that for you, including on Spotify, Apple Podcast, and many, many more. You can also make money from your podcast with no minimum listenership. It's everything you need to make a podcast. It's all in one place. It's very easy to use. So give Anchor a try. Download the free Anchor app or go to anchor.fm to get started. That's anchor.fm to get started. Carlos, before we took that break, you were mentioning, you're talking about numbers, and you said how human beings can never be numbered. We know it happened during the Holocaust. That's, that's what they did to people. They became numbers, and they became a statistic, and they wore those numbers, some of them, and that's how they were treated, uh, like subhuman people. So you're, you're right. Uh, well, we should look back to history recent history and refresh our recollection for those who haven't studied the Holocaust, people should. People were reduced to numbers and that's how they were treated as a commodity, as something almost disposable and a total devaluation of human life and uh, how you treat your fellow man, some of us believe, kind of is a reflection of society. So we can never ever allow a government, any government, especially not our government, treat people like numbers. I, I, I know there's a lot of pessimism in the, in the political climate. We don't talk politics on this show, but I, 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 we can't become cynical about our country. And I think Juan Carlos would agree and, and others that we, we are a beacon of hope for billions of people. America, I don't believe has an immigration problem. And I think we have an immigration I think people come here because they like what they see. We're a land of opportunity. We're a land of where the rule of law means something, supposed to mean something. I can tell you throughout my career in law and in policy, interacting with colleagues in other countries, one thing they love, in fact, just this week, I received an email from a, uh, uh, an activist in West Africa who sent his pleadings that he submitted in a court in a particular country because he felt that he was not going to get a good deal there. And he said, please, please put this in your tribunals. Uh, I know America stands for right and wrong. I know there's rule of law there and I trust what Americans do. So I, you know, when we talk about immigration and it's something that's uh, quite divisive, but it has been that way for a very long time. I have come to, to, to a point in my life where I, I, I believe we don't have a problem. We have issues and we have champions like Juan Carlos who are out there trying to do something about it. But we have something good happening here. People want to come here because they're coming from places for economic reasons, for political reasons, for a whole variety of reasons. We just can't take everybody in. It's, 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 it's as simple as that. But if we are going to let people in, it has to follow some type of a process. And colleagues of mine like Juan Carlos are very close up. They're seeing the human suffering right there. Uh, and something is broken in our system. And uh, what that is, I frankly don't know, but maybe Juan Carlos could give us some context for that because 
here in here in Washington, Juan Carlos, I've been hearing politicians, Republicans, Democrats, uh, conservative liberals. Everybody says, "Oh, there's a problem," uh, and then they come up with alleged solutions. Um, but you know, where is it? You know, where do you start to unpack something like this? That's I don't think it's that complicated. You you have a you're a nation of laws. You follow those laws, and you come here in an orderly way. What what's what breaks down in your opinion? Uh, a couple of points here. One is um, if you think of our immigration system, um, think of it when you have a car and you keep adding parts to it, but you realize that you're kind of still have the same car, but you keep just sort of fixing here and there, uh, and, and you, you, you haven't uh, sort of figured out that we have a problem because it doesn't work. And it, the thing is that people think that there's this herd, these herds, these floods of people, and that's not correct. We have a system and we have quotas and uh, it, it, there's a limited number of people who come. There's regular immigration and there's irregular immigration. And one of the things that happens that you have irregular immigration when there are problems in other places uh, and it's, it's often, it, it can be a simple problem, but then when you let it fester long enough, it becomes your problem. And we are the country, and I, I, I know that we will, I will get pushback for this because I really do believe that in only because I owe the United States and my family, uh, the US took us in. Yeah. And the opportunity that we were blessed to have, and let me tell you, my parents worked like dogs in, in, in factories. My parents had extra jobs. Uh, I have had my share of lousy jobs uh, that I, I, I it's, it's not, it's, it's not like a billion dollars were put in my hand. Hmm. And that's not that's not what I mean. I mean we had and I I have teachers uh, who I adore or using the wrong word, but they these people they gave us hope they gave us opportunity we had the opportunity to live without fear to the and, 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 and that was an incredible process and the thing is though that we uh, we came in what's called the freedom flights. And my father had been sent to a labor camp. Uh, my, uh, I remember that my, my sister and I were very uh, close to my mom because uh, there was always the fear that of what could happen to her. And that was no way to live. And the US took us in. And uh, the US, when we abdicate our responsibility to process refugees, and let me tell you that the idea of refugees is an excellent idea because you also gather huge amounts of information of what's happening out in the world by interviewing, uh, by interviewing and then by verifying because the more people you interview, the more you get a sense of sort of a critical mass of truth, if you will. Uh, and it's, it's good for us because my goodness, for the most part, you will have people who are dedicated to helping themselves, their families, and their communities. And we are built on immigration. That said, 
Um, there are people who will violate the law. There are people who will do things that are bad and we must deal with that. But we cannot guide ourselves and we cannot turn away. I, I had a client um, who was a regular business person and he said that he didn't understand why, um, and this is a, a person who um, was bringing money to the US. He was creating jobs and, and he was treated like he was a suspicious criminal in the middle of an act. And the answer is, why would be, we be so self-destructive? And so we need to go and explore the immigration system in ways, and one of the comparisons I mentioned is, uh, we monitor uh, interest rates, we monitor monetary policy, if you will, uh, and we, we tweak systems here and there, but the immigration system, we need to develop the political will to be practical and to be reasonable and to be sort of just. Because I don't know where we would be if the US had not taken us in. And my and, grandfather used to say that, uh, uh, Juan Carlos, that uh, you guys have nowhere to go. We, you have to fight for this because we had somewhere to go. I was born here, uh, but like you and your family, my my fa my immediate core family, my nuclear family, my mom, my dad, my uncles, they went through all that. They they came here and they were given pretty much a um, a bucket of peanut butter, a block of cheese, some spam, and off to went they work. In fact, my grandmother had to spend time working out in fields for a while and until they got settled on their feet. And it was rough at the beginning, but there was nothing but gratitude for America, for bringing them in, for uh, being able to adjust during a very difficult time, much more difficult time, frankly, than maybe and perhaps this pandemic, I guess, is especially challenging for most people. But I think during the Cold War, when a lot of our ancestors came over, at least my ancestors now came over, uh, it was a scary time. And America took them in and they always felt that they owed everything to this country. They afforded me an opportunity to be born here in freedom to get back and, and, and work. And, and, and I think that's a wonderful thing that we think most people who come here go through that process, but you're right. There, is, there has been a breakdown in the system of some sort. And it's just, it's, it appears to be growing. Um, I think that there's this backlog of, of cases I've heard from judges who serve on the immigration courts Let's say the backlog is significant and it's only growing. And you should have seen it coming. In fact, you said, I'm pretty sure it was you, you were speaking at a conference um, at FIU uh, earlier this year about in global immigration and foreign policy issues. Uh, how it struck you that, you, you know, how are the Europeans not surprised that there was not going to be a migration crisis? In fact, right here in the Western hemisphere, I always ask myself, you know, everyone talks about Cuba and Venezuela and Nicaragua, but one of the biggest challenges we have in the hemisphere right now is this massive movement of people, especially in the Andean region from Venezuela because they're fleeing economic and political oppression. How could policymakers have not seen that coming? That's been brewing and festering for decades. Sure. Exactly what you said, and it's interesting because See, there's the macro level and then there's the micro. Um, and I know that all those of us who were terrified 
an economics class because if it's there, uh, there, I have a joke that thank goodness I have my wife because I don't add well. Uh, yeah. and, um, and she's the one who makes sure that we're not homeless. Uh, and uh, and uh, I told you the version of that joke before. But the point is that um, at the micro level, if you will, at the individual level, you have to always take time. I, I have this um, uh, these two um, sort of little situations. Uh, one was uh, one of the first instances I was in a bingo hall that uh, I, at St. Margaret's Catholic Church in Clewiston, Florida. And it's, Clewiston is a sort of like one main road south of Lake Okeechobee here in Florida. And back then uh, there, uh, there were even fewer people, but one of the funniest um, situations was that this uh, Scalabrini father allowed me to use his bingo hall on Saturday afternoons as my office. And I had a couple of older people who volunteered to help me um, do stuff, get work permits and such for people. And there was this man who came in and he had a little boy and the boy must have been about nine years old and the boy was dirty in a way not that a boy would be dirty because he was out and playing but because he had been out in the field uh, and I, I said why is your son working and he said we have no choice and I said why and he, I of course explained the law that it's illegal and he said um, we left El Salvador he and his son, who was the older son, because um, we needed uh, to find freedom, we needed to find peace. This was during the Salvadoran Civil War. And I said, I'll make you a deal. I'll help you, I'll take your case, but under the condition that I'll get you a work permit and I'll get your son a work permit, but your son will not work. Um, the reason you got the work permit in part for a boy that age was because that was a way of getting a social security number. Mm. And remember that our entire system is based on social security numbers and such. And so I said, but you promised me that your son's gonna start going to school. And a few weeks later, and back then a work permit was much faster. Um, and this man, what he had faced in El Salvador was, let's just say it was not good. Uh, mm. It was a war. Right. Um, and uh, without going into the merits of, of, of war and whatever, it's a, it's a, it was a war. And, uh, and I saw the boy and the boy was clean in the way that children should be when they're well taken care of. And that the boy, his hands were not soiled. And if you've ever worked in fields or you've ever met anyone who works in the field, you see that there's a taint to their hands, just like for example, um, my father always had calloused hands because he had worked construction, he had worked in building engines, and it, there was a certain quality to the feel of his hands. And the little boy had little boy hands, and you can tell because I, 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 I'll explain why in a second, but that he had hands that had not been out in the field uh, recently. And the man promised me, and I hope that I, I, I only saw the man a couple more times after that. And I, I, I do pray that he um, that he um, uh, kept his word, and I hope he did. Uh, but the, the thing is that there's that. And then there was another incident that um, uh, 
I, when I talk to people, and I, I have a funny rule about doctors that I don't put a doctors who don't look me in the face, uh, because there are doctors who just type uh, now. Oh, they're less that's up. a pet peeve, man. Let me tell you something. We, we we can have a little segue on that for after after the yeah. next break. Uh, the, yeah. These doctors that you go to their offices and they're constantly looking at their iPad or typing. Yeah, yeah, or or like clicking on what you might might not have in your second. And so I I I like to chat with people because I try to get a sense. Of, for example, uh, people don't understand that in countries like Guatemala and Mexico, not everybody speaks English. And then, sorry, not everybody speaks Spanish. No, uh, there right. are people who speak indigenous dialects, and often people will tell you, "Yes, yes, I understand you," because there's a social stigma. To not speaking Spanish, but the truth is that they have no idea what you're saying in Spanish. And so, I realized that there were certain that this young man was he was not a citrus worker, and citrus workers tend to wear long sleeves because of the needles of the little uh, you, know, you, you get all scratched up in citrus work. And uh, one of the funny things is that I said, "Why are you wearing long sleeve shirts? It's, it's really hot mm. here in Florida." And he said, oh, no reason. And I said, really? So tell me about, and so I realized that he wasn't speaking normally and it wasn't a language issue. So I realized that there was a certain series of a pattern of scratches on his arm because he sort of somehow raised, for some reason, he raised his sleeves. Um, and I guess he wanted me to see. And there were these scars that were a cigarette burn or the scar from a cigarette burn and a cut in the form of a crescent moon, if you will. Um, and I am foolishly uh, showing you this with my hand, but I don't know why it's the, the hand thing right. um, with us. And so uh, I said, what happened? And he told me what the government had done in his country. And this young man had been tortured and a kind doctor from Doctors Without Borders examined him uh, and told me where and what had happened physically. Uh, and I was able to use that evidence. But from then on, I had this crazy rule that I asked people uh, about their scars and the source of their scars. And there's a scar you get because you fell from fooling around and hanging on a tree and sort of falling, uh, you know, and getting a scratch uh, or all the scratches you get as a child. Uh, and then there are these strange things that human beings do to each other. Hmm. Uh, and it was, I never thought it, I would find as many over the years, but even today I find such situations of people who can't look me in the eye, can't speak to me. Um, and uh, for, uh, one of the strange things is that with women, I will often ask uh, the husband or the relatives to, uh, that's really nice, can you speak to your wife by herself, please? Uh, and I'll ask him to leave. I mean, it's like, sometimes I guess I'm unpleasant. Uh, and I wanna talk to her because sometimes you'll find that the woman actually may be his victim, or you might find also that she has a stronger case, but she is sort of, oh, no, no, I will, I will not say what happened to me. And you can't imagine the number of times across the world that rape is used as a weapon. Uh, and uh, and it, it's, it's, it's horrifying. 
Mm. But it takes a while to develop these skills as a, as a lawyer. Um, and as a lawyer, you, 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 it's not just having instinct, but having, having what I call seasoned instinct in the sense of you know, how, do you, how do you learn to look and to diagnose correctly, if you will. Yeah, we're talking to Juan Carlos Gomez from Florida International University College of Law. We're going to take one more break. And if uh, Juan Carlos, would you stick with us for another segment? Sure, sure, please. Thank right, we'll be, we'll be right back. It's Jason Poblet with the Global Liberty Alliance having a great discussion with Juan Carlos Gomez from Florida International University. Uh, Juan Carlos, usually in the last segment, we try and uh, bring it home a little bit. Uh, we have the word global in our title, but we are also uh, advocates here in the United States and we have a network of, of lawyers we work with here in the States also defending fundamental individual rights, free markets and rule of law. And we receive a lot of questions from young lawyers or young people considering careers in law and doing this sort of work full-time. And a question we frequently receive, and I have over the years, I've worked in big law, uh, I've worked in government, and I, I get questions, well, should I go to big law? Should I, you know, what type of law should I practice? And I think that's a pretty personal question. Some of us know, I knew pretty early on, even before I was a lawyer, what I wanted to do, and I've been blessed that I've been able to do it. Um, but for some people, it's not that black and white. Uh, it takes time to get to that point. Uh, two, two questions. One, uh, what advice do you have for students? You deal with students all the time or people considering the law. And then why should Americans, uh, folks here in the States, uh, listen to or engage or support efforts like these you know, why does it matter? You know, why, why does this type of an advocacy matter to them? How does it impact people who maybe do not have an immediate immigrant background the way you and I do? Our legal system depends on justice. Our legal system depends on quality. And one of the things that I always tell people is uh, it's a two-part thing. One is, what is right for you? Um, if accounting, if business law uh, is right for you, that's fine. But be generous with what you receive. Um, one of the things that uh, I have found with big law is that there are many large law firms, national and international law firms, that, generally, that generously uh, share their litigation capacity and their skills and their sophistication and their resources uh, with, um, with uh, attorneys that tend to do the kind of stuff that I do. And, um, and the government has, uh, and I think by the way that the Department of Justice is one of the best law firms, if not the best law firm in the world. But I think that uh, one of the things that happens is that government has extreme power and it takes uh, the resources, it takes the, the, the sophistication, the, the manpower or, or, or human power, I'm not sure what the word would be, um, the, uh, uh, to, uh, to uh, 
defend against the government sometimes because government is not always reasonable. And you don't necessarily have to, uh, I have represented people who despise me uh, and uh, who I, I, I have a joke that I represent the left and the right. I don't care. I just believe that you have to, uh, you, you have rights. I am a big believer in, in free speech. I'm a big believer in, um, in I, I find it boring to only befriend people and I think it's useless and one of the problems in our society that only people only speak to uh, and, and deal with or do business with people they agree with. Um, three of my closest friends uh, completely disagree with me and people mock us because they'll say, uh, your, your, your friendship is strange because uh, you, and, you and I have spoken about one of these gentlemen, the one who I joke uh, thinks that we went wrong after the 13th century. Um, and, uh, and I, I, th uh, I think I know who you're talking about, but we're yes, not, we won't mention, we, we, will, we will keep, yeah, since he's not here to defend himself or herself, <laughs> we'll just keep it quiet. <laughs> I'll defend him, theoretically. I, I, uh, uh, and, uh, and so, but one of the, one of the funny things is that talk to people you disagree with, hmm. uh, you would be surprised common ground. You would be surprised how helpful and uh, I'll give you the example of this same gentleman. Uh, this same gentleman uh, is kind of a corporate counsel uh, and uh, has very sophisticated practice. And one of the, uh, and I, I once needed blankets. Um, and I called him up and I said, I need blankets. He said, what are you doing? And I said, there's a shortage of blankets in the area and it's kind of cold and you know Miami winter is kind of a misnomer but um, it's 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 I, he said oh take your car over to this warehouse and tell them I sent you and they're just going to load up your car you should have gotten a truck but I guess your car will have to do and sure enough I got the blankets mm -hmm. uh, and I took them over to the shelter where it, they were needed um, and people were warmer not permanently uh, there's no magic solution. There's no magic piece of legislation. That's where people get it wrong. People think that like we, we, we pass one piece of legislation and it's a cure-all of everything. That's and by the way, legislating is very difficult to do. Yes, and, but it, it's, it's, it's not a cure-all. No, it, it's it, not. Law is a matter of managing and tweaking and trying to be practical and do the best you can for the society for everyone. And, um, and as I, I always tell people, remember, those tomatoes aren't going to pick themselves and farmers need reliable people to do the work and farmers need to be protected and, um, and everybody needs to be protected. And we need to be careful that one sort side of government doesn't do a foolish thing uh, in the interest of whatever bureaucratic uh, goal it has. But there's you can be involved as a lawyer in many ways, even if you choose to not do the kind of work that I do. Um, you, I mean, as I tell people, um, there's, you can have grand ideas, but remember that a grand idea um, without actually funding it and then without following through. Um, I, I have this uh, gentleman I, I respect a great deal and he's an older gentleman and he has this great line, which is, 
you do realize that the poor do not eat only on Thanksgiving and Christmas. Um, and people think that, I'm not saying don't give the cans of food, but life requires much more than a can of food. Uh, it's, it's not a case, is one case, but sometimes you'll discover that you need to nurture that relationship with that client beyond um, because the immigration, for example, uh, issue could be one issue, but I have a joke with several people that I've seen to sometimes behave more like a marriage counselor uh, because I keep trying to tell people, is this really the way you want to go? Um, and you end up giving uh, sort of, or being the set of ears um, in, in other issues as a lawyer. And so there are different ways. There's no one set way uh, that um, that any that everyone has to do it. Uh, it, it. We don't have to all be public interest lawyers. We don't right. all have to be big law. And I think that entrepreneurship and law is extraordinarily important because you would be surprised the creative things that lawyers can do to be financially successful, and they should be generous with their communities, um, and they should, uh, and it, it's good for the legal system also. Yeah. Yeah, from the very, you know, one of my guideposts in law has been always bringing in potential solutions of things to de-escalate always a, a, a tense situation, but also to figure out even from a difficult situation that we, you know, matter that may, uh, there's always something good that can come of it. And I think we're, we, we have to look after we do our, due diligence and our checks for our clients, always look beyond that a little bit and try and figure out where's the client, where, where does he or she want to be after this is done and, and what's reasonable. And, and always being very upfront with a client, whether if it's a company or uh, somebody in prison, uh, I think you owe that as an advocate to your client uh, to be able to not just look at the law, but also counsel and try and provide options so that he or she can make truly informed decision. I think it's a, it's a beautiful profession. It's a great profession. And I, I hope more young people do it. Uh, and, and they pick the space, like you said, that, uh, that makes, you know, that interests them because always you're building the rule of law and no matter what field you pick, as long as you're advocating, you are helping you know, improve the civil society. You, a few years ago, and I think maybe you told me this in a conversation or I saw a video where you said this. And I'll, I'll, I'll tell you why. Let me just read what you said. You said homeless people do not only eat during Thanksgiving. And that reminded me of a conversation we had recently, but also I've had with other lawyers who engage in this, in this space, where we're, whether if it's in Miami or some of this global work that, that you've done with the Cubans and some of the work that we've done in other places, where there's a difference between the lawyer advocate and advocacy for human rights. I like to say cliche human rights work that may or may not be helpful. I think everything that brings attention to a, a human rights problem can be a good thing. But when, you, when, I, when I heard you say that, and you've seen in the profession that sometimes you have a lot of lawyers that, well, not even just lawyers, just the human rights world, the international human rights space. Um, you and I, I guess we would agree that, show me the client and I'll tell you if we have a case, right? Yes. Um, but, what did you mean by that statement? I think I know, but I want our listeners to hear your side of the story, why you said it. 
And also, what can we do in the profession to improve this? Because I can't tell you how many times we've had this conversation with non-lawyers in the human rights space who think we're just being difficult. That we tell them, look, there may be abuse there, but we just, you know, putting out a, tw a tweet and a press release doesn't make a case and may or may not be helpful to helping somebody get out of a jam. I, I have a rule in my work, and that is no client, no case. Uh, and that no client, no case means that unless someone has an actual problem, um, there's uh, it's, you, you and I can um, go and sit over coffee and talk about whatever abstract ideas we have, but that doesn't mean that it's a legal problem. Um, and sometimes, uh, and you mentioned the word de-escalate. Sometimes there are very practical solutions and people uh, don't understand uh, that lawyers uh, try to be the practical counselor, the advisor, the guide. And um, I always tell people um, that uh, your case can be resolved through A, B, and C. Um, there's no Supreme Court case here. Uh, and this is the simplest way do you have the evidence? If you have the evidence, this is great. If you don't have the evidence, we have a problem, NASA. Uh, and so I am one of those lawyers who is very, very focused on the evidence. Uh, I, and one of the interesting things is that lawyers often tend to be in policy and in, in, in leadership positions across our government and society. And one of the uh, issues that we face is that people say that um, if I insist on people having housing, then I, I, I might be infringing on their liberty, on their freedom to be homeless. And I just, I, I respectfully disagree. Mm -hmm. I, it, it, there, there are several kinds of homelessness. Uh, one is um, the check, uh, on Friday, and I've seen plenty of these situations where you, you make your money on and you get paid on Friday, but it'll cover the groceries, but not the light and the rent. Um, I've seen plenty of issues or situations where the check didn't make it, the check bounced, or the employer didn't pay them. Um, and that's one of the weaknesses that we have to be worried about in our society, that when people have no status, they become vulnerable. I never thought I'd represent slaves and I've represented two slaves in the last few years in our country. Um, and we have laws to deal with this, but there they were. And thank goodness it was actually law enforcement who brought them to me. Uh, and so we have to work cooperatively as much as possible. And uh, one of the issues is in terms of homelessness is often mental health and there's a correlation often with addiction uh, and, uh, and homelessness. And uh, I take the position that uh, we need to figure out a way to shelter and to shelter and provide services for people who often don't understand. I have a lot of clients who are severely mentally ill, um, who have no idea. There's a gentleman I represented for almost three years. 
And at the end of those three years, I realized this man still has no idea that I'm his lawyer. This man would have been killed in his country. Uh, and I won't go in, I, I don't, it's, there's no question. The government attorney and the judge, all we all agree this man needs protection. This man tends to wander around because the medication it doesn't even begin to address the problems in his tragic mind. And the thing is though that he's not, what do we do with someone like that? And I do believe that we can figure out ways to deal with the homelessness issue. And there are a lot of good people out there, judges, policemen, uh, private lawyers, advocates, and, and do-gooders who are out there trying to help. It's a very frustrating process because uh, sometimes you think you have it and you don't. Um, and the thing is though that we can't give up. Uh, we must keep trying and we must find ways for people to have safety, for children to be safe, and for us to diagnose and deal with issues preventively uh, so that way things they might fall apart and they will and we've all had cases like this when you think okay there i am there's the goal line and it falls apart right there mm -hmm. uh, or you solve the case and then three days later you find out your client's back in detention um and what are you going to do you you deal with it and it's a reality of life but it's, it's, it's quite a journey. Uh, I, I highly recommend it, sometimes not on a Monday, uh, <laughs> but uh, it's, it's, it's interesting. Oh, well, um, Carlos, um, Carlos uh, I could keep going, but I'm getting, a, I'm getting the signal that we have to stop talking, but this is, uh, we probably should have you back and if, if you're open to it, because we could keep going. And I think our listeners are going to benefit immensely from the work that you're doing. And frankly, from the clients you're doing, the city is lucky to have you and the team of lawyers down there that you work with who are on the front lines, uh, working behind the scenes, doing some very, very tough work. As we tell the young lawyers who come volunteer with us, uh, the Defense for Fundamental Rights is not just in foreign countries. There's a lot of work to be done right here. Uh, right, even right here in places like Virginia, uh, there's a lot of folks who could use some counsel and folks like Juan Carlos, um, uh, we're lucky to have them. And before we let you go, is there anything, uh, any message you have for, for listeners, maybe here in the States who, who, who ask, you know, what, you know, why should I care about these issues? You know, what, what, and I believe the, the answer is with everything you just said, but why should they get behind these campaigns? Is it, is, it, is it because as Americans, we take care of our own or is it a little more than that? Why, why don't you think there's more about, more about this type of work out there in the public space, I guess in popular media, for example? I, I think that we must all inform ourselves and we must inform ourselves from different sources, not just from uh, sources that we think uh, might be right, mm -hmm. but we must look at different perspectives. We must treat each other civilly um, and we must not dehumanize each other. And uh, it's, it's important that the only way is to do this is through education, but education is 
is sort of it's it's beyond the book. Books are extraordinarily important. Um, I'm one of those people who believes on paper. And I, I understand that um, I'm a dinosaur, uh, but I, I I believe that people need to keep educating themselves. I think people need to speak to each other to understand each other. And even when someone is disagreeable, uh, I'll, I'll end with this, if you like. There was this uh, little man, he literally physically not a big man, um, Phil Buskirk. And uh, Phil Buskirk, I met him many years ago. And he was uh, a gentleman who in Miami uh, when in, in, in the 80s, uh, in, before, but especially in the 80s, there was this um, flow of, gen of people from Haiti and we didn't have Creole speakers. And Phil and uh, he and his wife were retirees um, and he learned Creole and he would go uh, and all of a sudden the government offices were calling him uh, because he was able to give access to justice to people who could not communicate because Creole is not French and people needed someone to be able to help them to communicate. And he was not a lawyer. He was a retired businessman. And he had this great line. And I, I've all, it's always sort of stuck in my mind, which is smother them with love. Um, because he said that whenever a government official at first would say, absolutely not, get out of here, he would just smile back and he would um, sort of say, OK, I'll be back. Uh, and, uh, and he was back. And uh, you never give up, never give up. That's great. That's great, Juan Carlos. That's an inspirational story. And I hope we'll have you back soon. This is Jason Poblet with the Global Liberty Alliance. Juan Carlos, have a great weekend. I think it's going to be uh, warmer than ours. We're still digging. <laughs> we're, we're still digging out of a snowstorm here in Virginia, but uh, enjoy it. And uh, all the best to our friends down at FIU College of Law and the University. Thank you. Thank you, sir, for your kind invitation. We appreciate it.